my dear Alice, many happy returns of the day to you and St. Patrick. With this, I send you three photographs. Two of them I am quite ashamed of. But as I had no others ready and wanted them to go at once, I concluded to send them with an apology. I do not like them, but there has been no time since Monday to do any others. So please accept these with my love and trust to getting some better specimens one of these days. Have not heard from you in an age, but as I am becoming a poor correspondent myself, perhaps I had better not say much. Mother joins me in love and best wishes. Always affectionately, Elizabeth B. Strong. I'm Pamela Banos, in collaboration with the Alice Austin House Museum, and this is My Dear Alice, a podcast series that explores the life of photographer Alice Austin through her photographs and these letters that were discovered decades after her death. You'll find images of some of these letters, along with photographs referred to here, at the website that accompanies this podcast. That's mydearalice.org. Chapter 5 In the early 1890s, when photography's popularity mixed with festive parties and outdoor recreation, and people began performing for the camera, and joining camera clubs to share, exhibit, and win prizes for their efforts, several of Alice's friends and acquaintances also shared her enthusiasm for the medium. But none of them had quite the passion, or by the evidence, the skill and talent that she had. Austin's photos show a technical prowess, an aesthetic sensibility that stand out even among other published photographs of the time. In 1894, 10 of her photos would appear in the journal Camera Mosaics, billed as a portfolio of national photography, a collection of camera club photos. There were no galleries or exhibition opportunities outside of the camera club exhibitions. Alice belonged to the Jersey City Camera Club, and her uncle Peter, a chemistry professor at Rutgers University, was the president of the New Brunswick Camera Club. Violet Ward is often holding a camera in Alice's photos of her, and the loquacious Bessie Strong often shared her photographic escapades. I wish you could see some of the photographs I took last Tuesday. Eleven in one afternoon. My rogues gallery is going to be a work of art. Here's Julia Martin. I'm awfully sorry my picture faded out. We thought it was a very good likeness. Mrs. Snively would take very good photographs if she had the patience to wait for proper development. But she is in such a hurry she never takes time and it is a wonder she gets any result at all. Earlier, Violet had written from Washington, D.C. Dear Alice, the top of the morning to you these fine days, and may you not rest in tranquility until Ash Wednesday. Here I am with my aunt to enjoy all the delights of the capital. I only wish you were along. What fun we would have together. My camera is here, and I hope to take back some work with me. Undeveloped, of course. Did you succeed in securing some snow plates this year? What opportunities you must have had with this season of gold. There are no end of things to take here. 
Send me a line to learn of the absent ones. Where is Julia Martin all this time? And why don't she look me up in New York? Think I'm to have a 6 by 8 camera and want you to come spook around with me, looking up the right thing when I return to New York. With kindest regards to your mother, ever thine, Violet M.E. Ward. In October 1892, Alice joined her Aunt Nellie, Nellie's older brother Ralph Monroe, and another man, Thomas Brown, on an adventurous excursion that took them 185 miles by boat from New Brunswick, New Jersey, to Annapolis, Maryland. Sailing for 10 days on a two-masted sloop designed by Monroe and called the Waboon, which was the name for the east wind from Longfellow's Hiawatha, the foursome alternately sailed wide rivers and were pulled through narrow canals. In Alice's photographs of the event, we see the older bearded Monroe and Brown, who wore a Harvard sweater in all the pictures. Alice nicknamed the physically fit Brown Butterball, as he is noted on all of her negative sleeves. It may have been because of his appetite. They were the same age. The playfulness is striking in contrast to Henry Gilman's one-sided formality. After Alice and Nellie disembarked at Annapolis, the men continued on to Biscayne Bay, Florida, where the yacht had originated. Five years earlier, Monroe had purchased 40 acres in Coconut Grove. The home he would soon build there remains as the oldest standing house in Dade County and is now part of Barnacle Historic State Park. Ralph Monroe is best known today as a designer of more than 50 sailing yachts, but he was also a serious photographer. Years earlier, Alice's mother wrote that he had been photographing clear comfort. Ralph's new photos of the house are very pretty indeed. Fifteen years older than Alice, Ralph Monroe was clearly taken with her. He took her seriously as an individual and also as a photographer. After she and Nellie left the sailing excursion and while still on the vessel, the widowed Monroe wrote Alice a 1,000-word missive. Aboard the yacht Waboon, 8.30 p.m., November 26, 1892. My dear Alice, we have just had supper, corned beef hash, rice cakes, and tea, and Butterball's life is saved, for we have gone two hours past the regular mealtime in order to make a harbor and save all of the ebb tides toward Tyler, and his condition was critical. I was delighted to get your nice long letter at Charleston in company with the jolly one from Nellie. I wrote you from Southport, North Carolina when we had the pleasure of doing the town and getting acquainted with pretty nearly everyone in it. Almost a week was fooled away there. We made our start out. He went on to describe in detail the weather and how it affected their travel, including how they had outrun a hurricane. And he went on. Went to shore, took a walk in the pine woods, called on some of the farmers, picked some peanuts, and concluded we were lucky chaps. Next morning, he described towns where they stopped along the way, as well as their preparations for Thanksgiving dinner. Charleston is always an interesting place for me. So many quaint old buildings and objects, and I should like some time to spend a week or so there. Butterball was especially desirous to linger, but the detention at Bogue in Southport had made sad inroads into our allotted time. So next morning, Butterball went looking up films and maps, and Joe and I went marketing for our Thanksgiving dinner, turkey, cranberries, and plum pudding. And by 9.30, we were off again through the inside passage of Beaufort. Marines of the...
He went into greater detail on the components of their dinner and then launched into a weird dream he had about Alice, which gives us another glimpse into her character as others experienced her. String beans, carrots, and a bottle of claret completed the feast, which we got away with in good shape and then turned into dream. In my case of things, delightful in the extreme. One of the events of the night being a stroll on some beach with you and witnessing the landing of pirates in canoes after the manner of Captain Kidd in the last century. One of the gents had a finger growing from his nose, and you got very much provoked with me because I did not call them all by name and introduce you. Explanations on my part as to my never having met the gentleman before being of no avail. Hope you have forgiven me by this time. He went on in detail about the next day's adventures, the weather, and Butterball's travails at photographing and running out of film, which were individual glass plates. You would enjoy this part of our trip, but the number of plates required would be something awful. Poor Butterball hasn't any. Fired at everything in sight expecting a supply at Charleston, but they had not arrived and he could not buy any. Good night. Continuing his writing for two more days, he ends his letter with an invitation. You must take the Sea Island trip sometime, but earlier in the season. We will figure it out somehow. My next address, I hope, will be Coconut Grove, Dade County, Florida. Give my best regards to the family. Sincerely yours, Ralph. Arrived here at 5 a.m. this morning. Slight frost. In the meanwhile, Alice was back spending time with Violet Ward, who had introduced her to Daisy Elliott, the director of the gymnasium at the Berkeley Ladies Athletic Club in Manhattan. The club had just had their fourth annual open exhibition, which consisted of marching and calisthenics and dumbbell work, and the work at the weights and swingings and twistings and gyrations on horizontal bars, parallel bars, trapezes, and flying rings. Daisy Elliott, who was nine years older than Alice, was among the earliest American women who identified as an athlete. A newspaper article from 1889, reporting on a summer course in physical training at Harvard, in which women from across the country participated, illustrates Daisy's prowess. Miss Elliott took the prizes in dumbbell, club swinging, vaulting, and climbing exercises. She went up a long rope extended from the ceiling hand over hand like a sailor, clean to the top, winning great applause. The five foot two Elliot was badass. She never smiles in photographs, taking physical fitness and herself very seriously. In one of Alice Austin's photographs of a small group of women in the Berkeley Gymnasium, including Violet and Carrie Ward, Daisy Elliott stands on a tall platform, one knee forward, resembling a yoga warrior stance, the skylight spotlighting her. She poses dramatically in her voluminous bloomers, pointing toward the upper corner of the photo. The other women sit casually on floor mats, deep in shadow. An even earlier newspaper article sheds some light on Daisy's pose. Here's an excerpt from a report on the 1887 showcase at the Adelphi Academy in Brooklyn. The next number on the program was received with rapturous applause. Led by Miss Elliot, the young women assumed various graceful and picturesque poses. First, they stood with folded arms. Then, after appearing to point out some intensely interesting object miles and miles away, they put up their arm as though shielding off some deadly sword stroke. 
Then, they assumed attitudes which appeared pantomimically to picture defiance, abhorrence, beseeching, and prayer. I'm not sure what any of this has to do with athletic prowess, but Daisy's pose for Alice's camera captured her mastery, still effective six years later. By the middle of 1893, Alice's friends' thoughts were on Chicago's Columbian Exposition. Some were making plans to go, and others were lamenting that they couldn't. In mid-June, while Alice was visiting her Aunt Nellie and Uncle Pete in New Brunswick, she was invited to go to Chicago with Effie Emmons's family. Soon thereafter, she heard from Trudy. How perfectly lovely it is for you to be able to go to Chicago with Mrs. Emmons. You are a very lucky girl, but I must say they have picked out a very hot time to go. Why, you will die with the heat. They say it is frightful there now. You must make time to tell me all about your good times, past and to come. I live on ice cream and lemonade these days. Remember me to your aunt with lots of love. Trude Eccleston. The next day, Henry Gilman wrote. Dear Miss Austin, I am delighted to learn by your note this morning of your good fortune in regards to going to Chicago. My only regret is that some way could not be arranged so that you could go with us. But I don't doubt you will thoroughly enjoy it. All the accounts I have heard agree that it is worth almost any sacrifice. Alice left for Chicago on July 1st, and Mr. Gilman wrote again a few days later, lamenting over the lovely moonlit nights he was missing and also acknowledging how difficult it was to have a late evening with Alice in her Rosebank neighborhood on Staten Island. Dear Miss Austin, I meant to send you a line with the photos, but found I had no letter paper at the office. Forgot to get some Friday, and so postponed writing until today, hoping I should hear from you with your Chicago address. Please don't aggravate me by prating of your lovely moonlight nights. I am just dying for one of your piazza, with the moonlight on the water and all. I don't know how I shall get it unless I find a boarding place in Rosebank and take up a residence there for a few weeks. Today, I suppose you are enjoying the fair. I wish I were there. If I could get a pass, I would run out even if only for a day. I have a good mind to do it, as it is. And she heard again from Trudy. My dearest Alice, I was so glad to hear from you and think you are a brick to find time to write to me. What a lovely time you are having. Mrs. Emmons seems like almost as much of a fiend as you are at seeing things. I don't believe there will be anything left for you to see when you get through. That is a very Irish way of putting things, but it is just what I mean. My, what a lot. I shall take two days off, for I mean to hear about everything you both have seen and done. That is the privilege of a stay-at-home lady like myself. I have done very little since you left, but slave nearly every morning. Mother and I devote to sewing. I am helping her finish off her things as well as my own. Our plans at present are to go to Lake George the last two weeks in August, and the first in September. I played croquet with Effie at the Clifton Club on Saturday. All the dirt courts are now in full play. And then she heard again from Henry Gilman. Dear Miss Austin, I was delighted to receive your letter this morning. Of course, you are having a beautiful time. How could you help it? I wish I were there to enjoy the music. From present appearances, I shall have four female relatives to look after without other male assistance when we go. 
so that I fear I shall not have what is vulgarly known as a picnic. However, they are all persons who are abundantly able to look after themselves, if need be, so perhaps I am borrowing trouble. I am glad you are coming home so soon. Shall I have the pleasure of seeing you on, say, Tuesday evening the 18th? Drop me a note or telegram, and name some other night if that doesn't suit. Hastily yours, HKG. Austin was gone for two weeks, returning in the middle of July. Julia Martin, who had been writing regularly, learned that Alice had returned home from Bennington, Vermont. Dear Alice, I see by the paper that you have returned from Chicago, and I am waiting to hear your account. I know you must have been perfectly delighted. Miss Sanford, you remember her. She is quite masculine and lives in the summer in the yellow house near Mrs. Cooper's. She takes photographs. Well, she said she would never forget the sights of those huge buildings. I am going to the Adirondacks on Saturday with Mrs. Wellington, her mother, and a Miss Wellington for 10 days. I will be 14 miles from anywhere, and I expect to sleep, drink milk, and get some flesh on my bones. In a couple of weeks, Alice would also be in the Adirondacks. She stayed with Trude Eccleston's family at Lake George. A New York Times article reported that Alice and Trudy won second place in doubles in the canoe sailing race. Her photographs include light-hearted pictures of others rowing long canoes and posed groups of smiling people. As often seemed to be the case, Henry Gilman's words to Alice present a stark contrast. Dear Miss Austin, I was very glad to get your letter several days ago. I have left it unanswered solely for the reason that I have been so blue and worried and generally out of sorts that I had no wish to inflict myself on anyone. I have done nothing interesting. I have been nowhere except a bayhead for a Sunday or two, and have spent all my spare time on our own piazza with a pipe and doleful thoughts for companions. As to the World's Fair, I have serious doubts whether I will be able to go at all. If business conditions don't change pretty soon, I don't see how I can get away at all. I have neither had quite so hard and worrying a time as in the last five or six weeks. If it lasts much longer, I think the top of my head will fly off. Everyone has been away from flushing, and it is duller than I ever saw it. Please write to me again, unless you are afraid of getting another stupid letter. I am sorry I can't write more clearly, but I really don't feel it. Yours as always, HKG. The next week, Alice's mother wrote of a great storm that likely also affected Mr. Gilman's mood. My dearest Lolly, I hope the storm we had here last night did not reach Lake George, for it was most violent. The wind was tremendous and the old house fairly rocked with it. The rain came down with a rush inside our window. I had to get up in the night and pace the usual basin which was overflowing this morning. The captain was up at two o'clock carrying in the plants from the roof. They were being blown about in all directions. Then he had to go to the middle room for a rope to tie on the awning which threatened to fly off altogether. He had on this long India rubber coat as if he were at sea. The waves dashed quite over the bulkhead, gullied out in the corner, went to Ives, and this morning the grass below is coated with refuse, sticks, straw, etc. No end of branches are broken from the trees and the vines are badly whipped. Clear Comfort, 
The Austin family home, with its enviable waterfront location, also made it vulnerable to the elements and sometimes difficult to visit. The busy lives of Alice's friends, compounded by Staten Island's somewhat challenging travel route, led to plans being made and broken. In June, Bessie Strong wrote, I hear you want to visit from me this summer. Shall be delighted to, provided we can agree upon the time. But she never made the trip. It seems to be decreed that I shall never get to Rosebank anymore, certainly not on Monday, much as I should like to. It is very kind of you to ask me over, and if you still want me two or three weeks hence, provided no more company turns up, I may be able to come. But it is all doubtful, and if you have other plans, please say so frankly. Mother joins me in love. Thank you ever so much for your kind invitation, but you see, I cannot come now. Yours, Elizabeth B. Strong. How is Mr. Gilman? I hear he is all devotion still. Two days after Bessie asked about Henry Gilman, he also wrote Alice with regrets that he couldn't make it out for a visit. Dear Miss Austin, I was sorry about not being able to go to Staten Island on Thursday, particularly as it seems to be my last chance of seeing you until I get back from Chicago. I really think there is some chance of my going. Our plans have been rearranged so many times that it is quite bewildering. It is settled at last that we are to leave New York on Tuesday evening at 6. I expect to leave the family up there, returning to New York by the fast train Sunday afternoon. I have been so busy and bothered during the last few weeks, and particularly the last few days, that I hardly know where I am. I think a day's travel will be a real rest. I will see you as soon after I return as possible. As always, yours, HKG. In October, Bessie Strong tried again. My dear Alice, there seems to be no reason why I should not now accept your invitation, and unless something unforeseen happens, I think I can go over to Staten Island on Thursday. It's not clear if she made it out. Thursday was October 5th, and Alice was photographing boats at the first race for the America's Cup. On the evening of the final race... In her first letter to Alice, Daisy Elliott, who was apparently with Violet Ward, wrote from Brooklyn with apologies that they too could not make it out to Staten Island. My dear Miss Austin, I had thought to write tonight that Violet and I would go down by the 10 o'clock boat if it did not rain and was not too windy. Since supper, however, I think it would be foolish to attempt it, for it is raining and looks as if it might all night, and the road will be in no condition for a ride. I hope we shall have a good chance soon. I will let you know when we think of going. How I should like to have seen the race today. It would have been exciting. And how fine it is that the cup stays with us. I suppose you know the wards have moved to town. I shall hope to see something of you then this winter and shall be happy to see you here at any time if you can get as far off as Brooklyn. Sincerely, Daisy M. Elliot. In November... Bessie Strong gave up. I am too busy to think of going away, but thank you just as much for holding the invitation open. A couple of days later, again, Henry Gilman. Dear Miss Austin, I received your note several days ago, but delayed answering, hoping I would be able to select tonight when I could surely get down to see you. I have been in such a rush ever since the 1st of September that I haven't had any pleasure in life. I have so many things to tell you about that I am afraid I shall never catch up. So far as I now know, 
I have nothing at all on for next week, and any night that you are disengaged, I can probably come down. I'm writing in great haste, as I am just about going out to a dinner party. May I ask you to let me know two or three evenings when you will be at leisure? Hastily yours, Henry K. Gilman. Although not directly acknowledged by Alice Austin's circle, in May of 1893, the New York Stock Exchange crashed, setting off what is now known as the Panic of 1893. Some of this may be reflected in Henry Gilman's letters. In December, as Christmas approached, some of Alice's enterprising friends prepared to sell some wares. Julia was peddling bottles of ink, and much earlier in the year, Violet had filed a patent application for a modified bodkin, a needle-like threader to pull ribbon or for lacing corsets. To all whom it may concern, be it known that I, Maria E.G. McKay Ward, a citizen of the United States residing in the city, county, and state of New York, have invented a new and useful improvement in bodkins, of which the following is a specification. My invention relates to a new form of bodkin having spring ends or tails adapted to keep the path of the ribbon open and flat. So far as I am aware, the earliest form of bodkin used for drawing ribbon, tape, etc. through fabric or loops of fabric consisted of a piece of rounded steel or ivory pointed at one end and having an eye by which... Violet received a patent for her newly designed bodkin on December 19th long lengths of ribbon, which were drawn through the eye, so that the ribbon would hold while both... Julia apparently had recently met Violet and mentioned her and the Bodkins and gave an update on her ink enterprise. When you write, will you send me Violet's address as they lost the scrap on which I wrote it? I wish Violet had sent the Bodkins before Christmas. Ink orders keep coming in, and so far it has given entire satisfaction. Even Bessie Strong's annual Christmas letter suggests this new trend of economic self-sufficiency as she refers to Alice's photography sales. It is unclear what exactly she is referring to here, but they may be photos from the World's Fair. And of course she lists her Christmas presents. So, you are making money and getting rich. Will you not take me in when you open your studio? I did have a long list of Christmas gifts, as you imagine. Some of them are a silver-mounted pocketbook, a glove buttoner, set of silver studs, seven books, four beauties from Jack Van Dyke, two from Al and Delaney, and one from Etta Parker, the last on photography. Then I had money, two bottles of cologne, a glove box, and two pairs of gloves, an exquisite handkerchief, cup and saucer, and several other little things. When can you come and make me a visit? Weeks earlier, Henry Gilman wrote Alice his final letter. He is particularly agitated with her and seems overwhelmed with his business affairs. Dear Miss Austin, Of course, you have never approached the infernal regions, nor ever will, so it is impossible that you should be able to realize the condition I have been in for the last three months. It was uncertain whether I should go to the fair up to three o'clock on the day we went. It was only at that time that I found I could tear myself away at six, and then I simply had to drop everything and run. I was gone from Tuesday night to Monday morning, and had a fine time, but returned to find things here worse than when I went away. 
and from that moment up to now, I have hardly had any real peaceful moment. Even when my other senses had succumbed to Morpheus, my brain has been toddling bravely on. I have been in town most of the time. During October, I was only home four or five nights. My labors have not been so severe as they have been worrying and continuous. Several changes have occurred which alter the outlook somewhat, whether for better or worse remains to be seen, and which result in keeping my nose to the grindstone so that I never know when I shall have a free evening. I want to see you. There are lots of things to tell you. Some night next week, Thursday, I will come down if I may. Don't think I have forgotten. I have begun two or three letters to you. Each has been interrupted and destroyed. This barely escapes same fate. Hoping to see you. Hastily yours, Henry K. Gilman. On December 22, 1893, Henry Gilman was found unconscious in his apartment with an open gas jet running. On December 28th, the New York Times reported, Henry K. Gilman, manager of the Rutland Apartment House on West 57th Street, died at 1 p.m. yesterday at Roosevelt Hospital from pneumonia. Mr. Gilman returned last Friday night and in the morning did not appear at the usual time. At 8 a.m. Saturday, a bellboy went to his room and found him lying on the bed unconscious from the effects of inhaling illuminating gas which was pouring from an open burner in the room. Mr. Gilman was removed to Roosevelt Hospital and after a hard struggle, was restored to consciousness. He entirely recovered from the effects of the gas, but typhoid pneumonia set in and he steadily grew worse. Mr. Gilman's assistant, Mr. Heath, says there are no grounds for the rumor that Mr. Gilman tried to commit suicide. Mr. Gilman came in feeling ill, he says, threw himself on the bed, and fell asleep. The room occupied by him was of peculiar shape, and under certain circumstances, a strong draft of air is drawn through the room. Mr. Heath thinks that Mr. Gilman left the door open and that a draft of air slammed it shut, at the same time blowing out the gas. He also says that Dr. Carter, the house physician at Roosevelt Hospital, thinks pneumonia had started before Mr. Gilman was overcome with gas. Dr. Carter had retired when a reporter from the New York Times called at the hospital last evening and could not be seen. Mr. Gilman's father, who was a clergyman in Flushing, Long Island, was present when he died. If you or anyone you know is struggling with depression or suicidal thoughts, help is available. For 24-7 confidential support in the United States, call or text 988.
In the next episode, more life changes. Alice Austin becomes a New York street photographer. She embarks on a quest to buy a piano and begins collaborating with Violet Ward as a new recreational obsession replaces tennis. Trudy wrote me a very nice letter in answer to one of mine. She wrote to me all Staten Island had gone mad over bicycling, and she should have to go mad too. This chapter featured the following voice talent in their order of appearance. Natalie Welber, Liv Glassman, Madeline Bagnall, Royty Butler, Charlie Nicolini, Tom Banos, Rachel Hilbert, Benjamin Juris, and Kristen Wagner. Sound editor, Kendall Barron. Original music by Nicholas Rosa Palermo and me, Pamela Banos. Other music from Freesound, Muse Open, and other public domain and attributed sources. Links are in the website that accompanies this podcast, where you'll also find images of some of the letters and photographs that are referred to in each episode. That's mydearalice.org.